This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part 1, Chapter 20 the winter season set in with the month of June, which corresponds with the month of December in the northern hemisphere. It began with showers and squalls, which succeeded each other without intermission. The tenants of Granite House could appreciate the advantages of a dwelling which sheltered them from the inclement weather. The chimneys would have been quite insufficient to protect them against the rigour of winter, and it was to be feared that the high tides would make another eruption. Cyrus Harding had taken precautions against this contingency, so as to preserve as much as possible the forge and furnace which were established there. During the whole of the month of June the time was employed in different occupations, which excluded neither hunting nor fishing, the larder being therefore abundantly supplied. Pencroft, so soon as he had leisure, proposed to set some traps, from which he expected great results. He soon made some snares with creepers, by the aid of which the warren, henceforth every day, furnished its quota of rodents. Neb employed nearly all his time in salting or smoking meat, which ensured their always having plenty of provisions. The question of clothes was now seriously discussed, the settlers having no other garments than those they wore when the balloon threw them on the island. These clothes were warm and good. They had taken great care of them as well as of their linen, and they were perfectly whole, but they would soon need to be replaced. Moreover, if the winter was severe, the settlers would suffer greatly from cold. On this subject the ingenuity of Harding was at fault. They must provide for their most pressing wants, settle their dwelling, and lay in a store of food. Thus the cold might come upon them before the question of clothes had been settled. They must therefore make up their minds to pass this first winter without additional clothing. When the fine season came round again, they would regularly hunt those musmons which had been seen on the expedition to Mount Franklin, and the wool once collected, the engineer would know how to make it into strong warm stuff. How? He would consider. "'Well, we are free to roast ourselves at Granite House,' said Pencroft. There are heaps of fuel, and no reason for sparing it. Besides, added Gideon Spilett, Lincoln Island is not situated under a very high latitude, and probably the winters here are not severe. Did you not say, Cyrus, that this thirty-fifth parallel corresponded to that of Spain in the other hemisphere? Doubtless, replied the engineer, but some winters in Spain are very cold. No want of snow and ice and perhaps Lincoln Island is just as rigorously tried. However, it is an island, and as such I hope that the temperature will be more moderate." "'Why, Captain?' asked Herbert. "'Because the sea, my boy, may be considered as an immense reservoir, in which is stored the heat of the summer. When winter comes, it restores this heat, which ensures for the regions near the ocean a medium temperature, less high in summer, but less low in winter. "'We shall prove that,' replied Pencroft. "'But I don't want to bother myself about whether it will be cold or not. One thing is certain, that is, that the days are already short, 
and the evening's long. Suppose we talk about the question of light?' "'Nothing is easier,' replied Harding. "'To talk about?' asked the sailor. "'To settle.' "'And when shall we begin?' "'Tomorrow, by having a seal-hunt.' "'To make candles?' "'Yes.' Such was the engineer's project, and it was quite feasible, since he had lime and sulphuric acid, while the amphibians of the islet would furnish the fat necessary for the manufacture. They were now at the 4th of June. It was Whit Sunday, and they agreed to observe this feast. All work was suspended, and prayers were offered to heaven. But these prayers were now thanksgivings. The settlers in Lincoln Island were no longer the miserable castaways thrown on the islet. They asked for nothing more. They gave thanks. The next day, the 5th of June, in rather uncertain weather, they set out for the islet. They had to profit by the low tide to cross the channel, and it was agreed that they would construct for this purpose, as well as they could, a boat which should render communication so much easier and would also permit them to ascend the Mercy, at the time of their grand exploration of the southwest of the island, which was put off till the first fine days. The seals were numerous, and the hunters, armed with their iron-tipped spears, easily killed half a dozen. Neb and Pencroft skinned them, and only brought back to Granite House their fat and skin, this skin being intended for the manufacture of boots. The result of the hunt was this, nearly three hundred pounds of fat, all to be employed in the fabrication of candles. The operation was extremely simple, and if it did not yield absolutely perfect results, they were at least very useful. Cyrus Harding would only have at his disposal sulfuric acid, but by heating this acid with the neutral fatty bodies, he could separate the glycerin. Then, from this new combination, he easily separated the olein, the margarine, and the stearin by employing boiling water. But to simplify the operation, he preferred to saponify the fat by means of lime. By this he obtained a calcareous soap, easy to decompose by sulfuric acid, which precipitated the lime into the state of sulfate and liberated the fatty acids. From these three acids, oleic, margaric, and steric, the first, being liquid, was driven out by a sufficient pressure. As to the two others, they formed the very substance of which the candles were to be moulded. This operation did not last more than four and twenty hours. The wicks, after several trials, were made of vegetable fibres, and dipped in the liquefied substance, they formed regular steric candles, moulded by the hand, which only wanted whiteness and polish. They would not doubtless have the advantage of the wicks which are impregnated with boracic acid, and which vitrify as they burn and are entirely consumed, but Cyrus Harding, having manufactured a beautiful pair of snuffers, these candles would be greatly appreciated during the long evenings in Granite House. During this month there was no want of work in the interior of their new dwelling. The joiners had plenty to do. They improved their tools, which were very rough, and added others also. Scissors were made among other things, and the settlers were at last able to cut their hair, and also to shave, or at least trim their beards. Herbert had none, Neb but little, 
but their companions were bristling in a way which justified the making of the said scissors. The manufacture of a handsaw cost infinite trouble, but at last an instrument was obtained which, when vigorously handled, could divide the ligneous fibres of the wood. They then made tables, seats, cupboards, to furnish the principal rooms, and bedsteads, of which all the bedding consisted of grass mattresses, the kitchen with its shelves on which rested the cooking utensils, its brick stove, looked very well, and Neb worked away there as earnestly as if he was in a chemist's laboratory. But the joiners had soon to be replaced by carpenters. In fact, the waterfall created by the explosion rendered the construction of two bridges necessary, one on Prospect Heights, the other on the shore. Now the plateau and the shore were transversely divided by a watercourse, which had to be crossed to reach the northern part of the island. To avoid it, the colonists had been obliged to make a considerable detour by climbing up to the source of the Red Creek. The simplest thing was to establish on the plateau, and on the shore, two bridges from twenty to five and twenty feet in length. All the carpenter's work that was needed was to clear some trees of their branches. This was a business of some days. Directly the bridges were established, Neb and Pencroft profited by them to go to the oyster-bed which had been discovered near the downs. They dragged with them a sort of rough cart, which replaced the former inconvenient hurdle, and brought back some thousands of oysters, which soon increased among the rocks and formed a bed at the mouth of the Mercy. These mollusks were of excellent quality, and the colonists consumed some daily. It has been seen that Lincoln Island, although its inhabitants had as yet only explored a small portion of it, already contributed to almost all their wants. It was probable that if they hunted into its most secret recesses, in all the wooded part between the Mercy and Reptile Point, they would find new treasures. The settlers in Lincoln Island had still one privation. There was no want of meat, nor of vegetable products. Those ligneous roots which they had found, when subjected to fermentation, gave them an acid drink, which was preferable to cold water. They also made sugar, without canes or beet-roots, by collecting the liquor which distills from the Acer saccharinum, a sort of maple-tree, which flourishes in all the temperate zones, and of which the island possessed a great number. They made a very agreeable tea by employing the herbs brought from the warren. Lastly, they had an abundance of salt, the only mineral which is used in food, but bread was wanting. Perhaps in time the settlers could replace this want by some equivalent. It was possible that they might find the sago, or the breadfruit tree, among the forest of the south, but they had not as yet met with these precious trees. However, Providence came directly to their aid, in an infinitesimal proportion, it is true, but Cyrus Harding, with all his intelligence, all his ingenuity, would never have been able to produce that which, by the greatest chance, Herbert one day found in the lining of his waistcoat, which he was occupied in setting to rights. On this day, as it was raining in torrents, the settlers were assembled in the great hall in Granite House, when the lad cried out all at once, "'Look here, Captain! A grain of corn!' And he showed his companions a grain, 
a single grain, which from a hole in his pocket had got into the lining of his waistcoat. The presence of this grain was explained by the fact that Herbert, when at Richmond, used to feed some pigeons, of which Pencroft had made him a present. "'A grain of corn?' said the engineer quickly. "'Yes, Captain, but one, only one.' "'Well, my boy,' said Pencroft, laughing, "'we're getting on capitally, upon my word. What shall we make with one grain of corn?' "'We will make bread of it,' replied Cyrus Harding. "'Bread, cakes, tarts,' replied the sailor. "'Come, the bread that this grain of corn will make won't choke us very soon.' Herbert not attaching much importance to his discovery, was going to throw away the grain in question, but Harding took it, examined it, found that it was in good condition, and looking the sailor full in the face, Pencroft, he asked quietly, Do you know how many ears one grain of corn can produce? One, I suppose, replied the sailor, surprised at the question. Ten, Pencroft. And do you know how many grains one ear bears? No, upon my word. About eighty, said Cyrus Harding. Then if we plant this grain, at the first crop we shall reap eight hundred grains, which at the second will produce six hundred and forty thousand, at the third five hundred and twelve millions, at the fourth more than four hundred thousands of millions. There is the proportion." Harding's companions listened without answering. These numbers astonished them. They were exact, however. "'Yes, my friends,' continued the engineer, "'such are the arithmetical progressions of prolific nature. And yet what is this multiplication of the grain of corn, of which the ear only bears eight hundred grains, compared to the poppy-plant, which bears thirty-two thousand seeds?' to the tobacco-plant, which produces three hundred and sixty thousand. In a few years, without the numerous causes of destruction, which arrest their fecundity, these plants would overrun the earth. But the engineer had not finished his lecture. And now, Pencroft, he continued, do you know how many bushels four hundred thousand millions of grains would make? <laughs> no, replied the sailor. But what I do know is that I am nothing better than a fool. Well, they would make more than three millions at a hundred and thirty thousand a bushel, Pencroft. Three millions! cried Pencroft. Three millions. In four years? In four years, replied Cyrus Harding. And even in two years, if, as I hope, in this latitude we can obtain two crops a year, at that, according to his usual custom, Pencroft could not reply otherwise than by a tremendous hurrah. So, Herbert, added the engineer, you have made a discovery of great importance to us. Everything, my friends, everything can serve us in the condition in which we are. Do not forget that, I beg of you. No, Captain, no, we shan't forget it, replied Pencroft and if ever I find one of those tobacco-seeds, which multiply by three hundred and sixty thousand, I assure you I won't throw it away. And now what must we do?" "'We must plant this grain,' replied Herbert. "'Yes,' added Gideon Spilett, "'and with every possible care, for it bears in itself 
our future harvests. "'Provided it grows!' cried the sailor. "'It will grow,' replied Cyrus Harding. This was the twentieth of June. The time was then propitious for sowing this single precious grain of corn. It was first proposed to plant it in a pot, but upon reflection it was decided to leave it to nature and confide it to the earth. This was done that very day, and it is needless to add that every precaution was taken that the experiment might succeed. The weather having cleared, the settlers climbed the height above Granite House. There on the plateau they chose a spot, well sheltered from the wind, and exposed to all the heat of the midday sun. The place was cleared, carefully weeded, and searched for insects and worms. Then a bed of good earth, improved with a little lime, was made. It was surrounded by a railing, and the grain was buried in the damp earth. Did it not seem as if the settlers were laying the first stone of some edifice? It recalled to Pencroft the day on which he lighted his only match, and all the anxiety of the operation. But this time the thing was more serious. In fact, the castaways would have been always able to procure fire in some mode or other, but no human power could supply another grain of corn, if, unfortunately, this should be lost. End of chapter.